Coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for another episode of Tech Talk with your host, Joey Klein. Okay, welcome to another episode of Tech Talk. Hope everyone is well out there. Um, this is the first of a number of special episodes that we're going to have because it is produced in partnership with Trevelino Keller, um, a premier Atlanta-based uh, agency for uh, technology companies. So thank you very much, Trevelino Keller, for helping set this up. This is going to be a great show. Uh, we have two guests today, and our, our show today is really much more focused on um, medical device technology than others have in the past. Uh, so first, we're going to talk to Chris Herman, founder and CEO of Clean Hands Safe Hands. Hey, Joey, good morning. Chris, thanks for being here. And then we're going to talk to Atandra Berman, uh, CEO and founder of RCE. Hi, Joe. Nice to have you. Okay, guys. So uh, as we always do uh, alphabetically by company, we're going to start with Chris. So in, in an era where uh, you cannot tell what most companies do based upon their name, you have taken the route of being as explicit as possible about what your company is about. We have, and it's fundamentally really that simple. And so our company has a technology platform that we use to reduce the spread of infections within hospitals. And fundamentally, when you get down to the very basics, as simple as cleaning your hands. As simple as cleaning your hands. So it, it, it sounds some, like something simple. And it sounds, I think, to maybe a layperson about there, how can you build a company based around simply people washing their hands? <laughs> That's a fantastic question. So for, for you and I and most people that are out in the, 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 the real world and the public, yes, you hear about the importance of it. And we've got toddlers at home and they spread germs all over the place because they don't wash their hands and sneeze all over everything. But the problem becomes much more significant and much more impactful when you're hospitalized um, in a, what most people consider a hospital. So you're in, the, in a facility next to other people that are sick in close proximity. And that's where infections spread, unfortunately. Uh, most people these days are in the hospitals for reasons, and they're sick. And, and just that act of being sick or having surgery or an illness compromises your immune system, which makes you more susceptible to get a variety of infections. And the challenge is, and this has been something that has plagued healthcare quite literally for over 150 years, is doctors and nurses, as they go take interact with the patients day in and day out. They touch things and they touch people, which is good, and that's what you want. But as they do that, one of the unintended consequences is they, they spread those infections throughout the, the hospital environment. But Okay, so we, we all go about our daily lives, and I understand that that is something that maybe falls by the wayside in the midst of daily activities. But wouldn't you expect for a doctor and a nurse for that to be med school 101, to wash your hands? How does this fall by the wayside so easily? It's it's interesting. It's funny you asked Med School 101. Uh, I um, went to medical school, and actually, we never had a lecture about hand hygiene while we were there. And I went through a to a very uh, well respected uh, medical school here in town. And um, the reality is, is when you, from a common sense perspective, yes, touch, clean your hands going between patients. But when you look at what doctors and nurses have to do all day long, that's where the complexity comes in. Like you or I you clean your hands after you go to the restroom a couple times a day. You try and do it before meals a couple times a day, four, five, six, maybe 10 times on a busy day. We have nurses that should be cleaning their hands four or 500 times within a 12-hour period. So when wow. you kind of run the math on that, that's every three or four minutes all day, every day for 12 hours straight. 
And that's where the complexity comes in. And this is why we have a business around it is the, the staff are quite frankly, so busy in many cases, they are not aware of the time they should be cleaning their hands. It leaves room for human, well, I would say human error, but really it's just human behavior. My four to 500 times a day, that's unbelievable. Yeah. And I think you're, 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 the way you uh, characterize that, it is human behavior. It is not, yes, they are potentially errors, but what we have found as we've learned more and more about this and through our research studies, it's, it is almost never an intentional choice to not clean your hands. It is just a byproduct of the hospital environment, the high acuity, and the, the sick people are. And this is just what happens when you put people in stressful environments and they're very, very busy. Uh-huh. So, right. And, and I don't think anyone out there is thinking to themselves, well, you know, doctors are being – like maybe some doctors are being, you know, specifically negligent, right? I'm sure that is not the vast, vast majority of healthcare professionals. So how do you what, – what is the basis of your company mm-hmm. in terms of – behavior that you change and technology you use to change that mm-hmm. behavior. So we have a a technology platform and it is a a sensor-based platform. You can think of it as a I know the, the more common buzzwords these days are IoT or data analytics platform. So we put sensors throughout the hospital, specifically on all the soap and more commonly the hand sanitizer dispensers throughout a hospital. And then we give the staff a little badge reel that they wear on their photo ID. That you, If you're in a hospital, you'll see all the doctors and nurses with photo IDs. And inside that is something that's functionally pretty equivalent to what a Fitbit does. Um, and among other things, that allows us to identify who those doctors and nurses are as they interact with their patients. Um, and then we take that data, we collect it, we analyze it, and we do a variety of, um, by leveraging the sensors, as well as the data analytics platforms, we do a, a series of uh, really targeted data interventions to help address people's behavior. And we've been fortunate to identify a very systematic way to do this, um, and we can reliably reduce the infections through the data and the real-time feedback those centers provide. So you're able to then like segment down to the professional healthcare, um, you know, Dr. A washed hands this many times. And then are you able to sort of cross-reference, you know, this is how many patient interactions that Dr. A had. There's something isn't matching up here. We, yes, we can do that. Um, we, at sort of the most fundamental level, yes, that's what our sensors generate. What we have um, learned over the years of doing this is that um, sometimes those kind of obvious approaches, because the the initial reaction from all the healthcare leadership is, oh, well, we're going to take the list of all the doctors who don't wash their hands and post it in the break room and it'll, excuse me, that'll get fixed. The reality is, is that actually creates more work and frustration for everybody. And so what we do is use the data in a very systematic, um, almost um, targeted way to help highlight what are their barriers, why are they happening, and kind of build successfully over um, a period of, takes most hospitals six to nine months to fully mature with, with what our data analytics capabilities can provide. And, and what are the most common barriers? So the, the by far and away, the um, most common reason people don't wash their hands is it's a lack of awareness. Um, the, that those nurses who are in and out three or 400 times a day, um, if you ask them, they will say, and they'll literally show you their chapped hands from being dried out with alcohol-based right. hand sanitizer saying, I wash my hands all the time. And they do. But what they don't do is they're not aware of the the other 300 times they go in and out of the room 
um, all day throughout their shift. And so we bring some awareness um, through our uh, our sensors actually have a real-time reminder. It's a person's voice that'll say, please sanitize, please clean your hands. So we give them real-time feedback when they forget to perform hand hygiene. Um, and then the, the next big thing is that there are there are workflow barriers, which we do a lot of analytics around, is there are nurses who go in all over the unit all day, every day. Um, they may be, they're well-intended, hardworking, very compassionate nurses, maybe a tad disorganized, but they, they literally run around the unit all day long and they can't clean their hands that frequently. Sure. So we help the hospital identify those, put some things in place to help make them a little bit more efficient, I'll slow them down a bit. Um, and then we also, in real time, identify um, highly unusual situations that somebody, there's an emergency in a patient's room, so a patient's very sick, um, that just kind of happen randomly throughout the, the hospital day um, and help the hospital leadership know that and they can get the, help target the appropriate resources. So to someone listening who's saying to themselves, this is really a lot of big brother activity for people washing their hands, help quantify the scale of this problem. Um. So the 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 healthcare associated infections are actually now the leading cause of accidental death in the U.S. So there are roughly, uh, depending on the numbers, it's roughly around a million, a little bit over a million infections that occur within the hospital, and unfortunately, that leads to over a hundred thousand people a year um, that that pass away from from these complications. So it is a to put that in perspective. If you were to go into really any of the hospitals in the extended uh, Georgia area, you have about a one in about a five percent, so one in twenty chance to get a potentially life-threatening infection. And w- how? Uh, okay, so I, I imagine that hand washing is not the only reason why that happens. But have you been able to quantify what? I don't know percentage number. What? What? what how you think that you can impact that mm-hmm. based upon the technology? Absolutely. So, um, hand hand hygiene is the foundation, and that's what really every organization will uh, at least say on paper. Um, so we, but there are certainly many other factors and hospitals tend to do a very good job on their own of addressing and putting things in place to identify those factors. So our average hospital that has reduced infections or that, that has followed that, that process that I described, they reduce their infections on average by over 65% within six months. Wow. Um, and that'll range anywhere from 45 to up to 85%. And we have done studies where we have come in, installed the system with the voice, taken it away, back on again, off again, and you see infections kind of go up and down following the the impact of our technology. And so we, we by no means claim that we can solve every infection. We can very consistently get more than half of them, though. That's, that's pretty big numbers in such a short time period. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's say that it's, you know, six or nine months later and you have drastically uh, decreased those numbers um, and decreased the number of people getting sick in the hospital. What is, but you have all of this incredible information about interactions between doctors and nurses and patients. What is the long-term relationship with that healthcare system once you've tackled that problem? Mm -hmm. So we are starting to do more and more analytics around that that patient to provider interaction. So there is, um, with healthcare these days, and especially as everything has changed to a pay for performance model, really in the sort of post affordable care act era, um, hospitals have to become more efficient in order to quite frankly survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and their biggest cost in biggest resource is their, their healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, technicians. Um, 
but most organizations have no idea what they do all day long. And they will do design interventions, design things to help improve the quality of the care they deliver, but they have no idea what actually happens out in the wild, especially with the, when you look at sort of these big multi-hospital health systems that will have 15,000 healthcare providers. And so what we're doing with that data is helping using the, the platform that we've built to both collect the data, but then our focus really is how do we digest that data in a way and give it back to the hospital so they can drive clinical behavior change. Mm-hmm. So we're looking around things um, such as uh, helping identify scenarios that where patients are at risk for falling and making sure we get the right healthcare provider in the room before that happens. There is a growing area for healthcare um, focused on patient satisfaction. So it's really a, a qualitative field for how happy the patients are and how satisfied are they be care where they're being delivered. And that's growing in importance for several reasons. And we're helping provide those teams with the analytics to say, all right, who are the, the nurses and, and doctors who are really taking good care of the patients versus where are the opportunities that we can intervene to help support them in that, that patient care? So I want to back up a little bit and talk about your story because mm-hmm. as as we mentioned before, you are an MD by training and now you're a technology entrepreneur. So is this an accident? Is this intentional? Um, talk about how you got into this position because it's not necessarily a straight line. No, it is a very curvy, um, probably spider web. Uh, so I ended up as an entrepreneur by accident. So I, w- I went off to uh, medical school and graduate school thinking I was going to go off and be your normal surgeon and um, was very fortunate that what started as a uh, a small research, for lack of a better term, side project for me while I was in graduate school, got off the ground. It kept going and going, and we funded everything through state and federal grants between the academic research institutions here in Atlanta, so Georgia Tech, Emory, and the CDC. And then it just kept going and going. We had more success, got larger and larger grants. And then about four or five years ago, we got about as far as we could with the research centers and the really just couldn't go much further in the academic environment. And then at that point, uh, I took what was supposed to be a two-month kind of mini sabbatical off from medical school, and that was five years later. <laughs> and so we've been, we've been fortunate that we've uh, made more right decisions than wrong decisions along the journey and have learned and are uh, growing um, like gangbusters these days. Well, and, and you mentioned Georgia Tech, and um, I think that you used to be part of ATDC, correct? Correct. So we we started um, very early on as one of their um, their select. It's now a select program companies early in the day, and we're part of their um, incubator. Excuse me, and program for about three and a half years, and then we graduated. Uh, it's a little over a year and a half ago at this point from from their program. Uh, I, I'm curious to get your opinion on a slightly different topic, but you know, you talk about your training as a, you know a traditional MD. I, I think that you know many of us have read articles or heard interviews about the state of medical school and the um, lack of pipeline of students getting into medicine, the high barriers in terms of cost as well as time spent, um, and I. I feel like it's it's somewhat one-sided. I'd, I'd be curious to hear mm-hmm. it from a practitioner's perspective on how much of that you think is legitimate or not. I think I think it all is legitimate. I think, but it, I think it's a more complex answer um, than um, just kind of a, a one-sided perspective. Um, and I think it also applies to any healthcare field. Yes, physicians are perhaps the most 
um, and, and what in the future will become the greatest shortage. And it takes significant cost to train a physician. Um, they have, again, at least four years of medical school. And then the thing that most people don't realize is they spend another three to some, um, uh, in some cases, 10 plus years in residency. And you, you work a hundred, uh, theoretically no more than 120 hours a week. Uh, but that sometimes gets stretched and it's a very, very long, very low paying, uh, road. And so there's an interesting article that I, I saw that looking at lifetime earning potential and costs, comparing a physician to a UPS driver. And it oh took God. 37 years of working as a physician for those lines to cross. Uh, exactly. Oh um, for, for those who, cause if there's no video here, my, my jaw is open. <laughs> That's, <laughs> yes. And so, unbelievable. And, and, and it's just these days with all the changes in our healthcare, it's a tough time to be a, a any healthcare provider. Um, healthcare is, is tr- kind of tr- starting to catch up to the changes of how things going, but it's a, it's a slow change. Yeah. Um, and so I think, um, fortunately the, the people that are in healthcare are doing it for the right reasons. The very compassionate, self-motivated individuals that for lack of a better term, have a calling to do it. Um, and, and for me, that was, that was my plan for quite a while. And then ended up, uh, on this journey and discovered that I could actually make a bigger impact as a physician and engineer working on healthcare as opposed to a physician working within healthcare. And so, uh, but it was, uh, completely um, becoming an entrepreneur by by accident. Well, I think that's kind of the commonality from a lot of people that we have on this show. V- very rarely is are there those who kind of, you know, from the time they were nine, uh, you know, say, well, I, I don't know what it's going to be, but you know, I'm I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Uh, you know, so often, and I, and I think when it is the most impactful is when it kind of it's an unintended consequence. It hits you out of nowhere. Um, as opposed to, you know, not having the idea of being a business owner first before you actually have what that idea is. Absolutely. And it's a, um, being a, an entrepreneur and a start and working in a startup is the, the perception out there is that it's a very sexy kind of fun way to do things. And there, there is some truth to that. But the reality is, is there are a lot of very, very hard days. And we are knock on wood fortunate to, to be in a phase of our company's growth that we're kind of over that first hurdle. Um, and, but there were some very, very long days, lots of nights and weekends, lots of lost sleep to, to get to the, the point that we are. Well, we, we live in this environment in which entrepreneur, um, has become rock star status. And I think that it can, and, and look, part, I, I think the overall trend there is a good one. Um, I think it's great for people to feel empowered to, you know, start their business and, um, you know, the reaction maybe 30 years ago to what are you doing? I'm starting my own business would be, well, so, so you're basically out of work is what you're telling me mm-hmm. as opposed to now when there's a little bit more cachet and, um, probably some more self-esteem around that. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But I also do think that it kind of hides the realities, um, the mental and emotional toll that it can take to be in that position. Absolutely. For every rock star that's flying around in their private jet, there are probably 300 more living out of the back of their <laughs> van with a guitar. That is actually a very good uh, comparison. Yeah, the, the music industry isn't that far off. Absolutely. Yeah. What What has being in Atlanta and Georgia in the healthcare space meant for you? There, there have been several things, and honestly, we, we, we could not have, have been – I mean, we wouldn't have existed without the – I would say the Georgia technology ecosystem. I mean, look, going back to our early research days, uh, we literally 
could not have done what we did. The technology did not exist at the time without the help of our, of our early research partners. And then as we matured, we benefited from um, state of Georgia um, funded and supported programs, the uh, ATDC being a huge one. We were also very fortunate to be part of the Georgia Research Alliance program that helps commercialize technology out of the universities. And early on, you're most desperate for help and support and capital and resources. But at that point, nobody wants to give it to you. And so they, uh, these programs in particular really help people early on when it's two people with a good idea, um, but have no idea how to spell a startup, let alone run one. And they, they really helped get us off the ground. And then as we matured and grew, and grew, um, having a technology, an ecosystem of other people, whether it's healthcare or other technology companies kind of at the same phase, trying to figure it out, struggling with the same thing, um, has been really helpful. So we can, um, going back to, uh, some of my closest friendships or other founders, there's a unique challenge that comes from founding, especially a high growth, technology company, especially those in healthcare that have huge barriers to entry, that we kind of compare war stories and battle scars and just kind of help figure it out together. And then also, more importantly, where we are, where we're growing as quickly as we are, having access to talented people is hugely impactful. And we've been fortunate uh, for most of our technical people who have at some point or another had an interaction with Georgia Tech um, and being able to have um, students and interns and co-ops uh, and then as we've grown, a lot of those turn into full-time employees has been a, a huge um, benefit and blessing for us. I'm glad you mentioned the Georgia Research Alliance. One of our uh, recent past shows, we had uh, Kurt Jacobus with the uh, Georgia Research Alliance mm-hmm. Venture Fund on. And I'll bet that most people who listened were surprised to learn that the state actually allocates money uh, for you know startups. Um, it's just fantastic. Yep. It is a very unique um program and is something for especially the ones coming out of universities that that have a very historically a very poor track record of being successful it is a fantastic program to help get those great ideas across that 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 imaginary line to to be starting to become commercialized yeah well um I've enjoyed learning more about what's going on at Clean Hands, Safe Hands. And uh, if anyone listening to this wants to talk to you or learn more about you, what's the best way to get in touch? Yeah, probably the best way is either uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, my last name is spelled is Chris Herman. It's H-E-R-M-A-N-N. Or you can email me at chris at cleanhands-safehands.com. Great. Chris, thanks for coming on and telling uh, your story. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Trondre, you've been sitting there patiently. How you doing? I'm doing great. So, um, again, we're going to continue on um, with the medical theme here. Um, we're going to talk about a bit of a different issue and uh, body part here. So, specifically, we're going to talk about heart attacks, aren't we? It's a very uplifting topic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's still a major problem. It's one of the biggest killers, cardiovascular disease. And heart attacks is the outcome of cardiovascular disease. And where RCE is placed is in monitoring that coronary artery disease before a heart attack. And so what you're what you're going for with your technology is you have a ton of people, I mean look there there's some people who have chronic heart disease, right? They're monitored their entire life. And then there are some people out there who have a heart attack seemingly out of the blue for no reason whatsoever. And the goal here is to try and as much as possible prevent um, those that can be prevented as much as possible. Yeah, there is a gap in uh, spe- specifically diabetics 
and uh, they suffer from something called silent heart attacks. And these are people who have, um, you know, diabetic retinopathy, peripheral neuropathy and diabetic retinopathy. So they don't feel pain. They don't feel chest pain. So when they actually have an underlying progression towards a heart attack, they don't, they might not feel it on time. And these people are not catered to. Um, and so that is long-term vision. We do want to get to these diabetic people who can't feel pain sitting in their home and it's too late to intervene and provide a better outcome to those people. Okay. So let's, let's take a step back and talk about your journey, um, to, to this mission and, you know, kind of the, the, the state of the company as is right now. So tell me about your background. Yeah. So I have, a, a interesting background, I went to Purdue uh, for engineering. And then I worked in the industry for about eight years and I really enjoyed doing that. And I switched to medical school. I went there for a couple of years. And, uh, after taking my U assembly step one, I, uh, went back to the Bay area and a couple of my college uh, friends from Purdue had a startup and I wanted to tinker around with the concept of medical and engineering, uh, together into medical devices. So I did that for about a few years and I had a personal, um, um, you know, loss and, and I began to look at the gap in, um, you know, the healthcare workflows and efficiencies. And I realized there's a huge opportunity, a huge opportunity to not only solve a problem, but make an impact to a lot of people. And so it's not just about, you know, solving a problem, but it's bringing peace of mind to these patients, to these caregivers. And, uh, the first thing I did when this occurred to me was, I met with one of uh, my uh, cardiologist preceptors from back in the day and I, um, you know, unfolded the problem and, you know, tried to understand what is the ground reality. And he gave me a reality check of what's really happening. And I was surprised that healthcare was far behind on the application of technology, the, the value that it can bring to patients as well as clinicians. And that's what started this journey for me back in 2018. Uh, when I started RCE. And, and was the essence of this reality check that, you know, look, you're coming to me with a problem that is absolutely a problem, but I can't really tell you that there is some big solution out there. We all just sort of accept that we have to live with this and there's not much to do about it. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, and those initial interviews with various cardiologists gave me a sense that, yes, there there is obviously a problem and that there is a solution in the healthcare facility uh, it's not the most efficient, but it is, uh, it does exist. And, uh, cardiologists are not able to intervene and provide such effective solutions outside the hospital. And that's where a lot of these issues happen. A lot of these people who are walking around with various cardiac diseases, uh, heart diseases, um, and, and there is no effective way to monitor them prior to a heart attack. So, for example, you know, we compare with other areas like diabetes that has, um, you know, moved strides in terms of monitoring and effective care. Uh, more recently, you know, arrhythmias and, and um, monitoring those patients have also moved along. But uh, around the heart attack and um, cardiac or coronary artery disease, there is no effective monitoring uh, that can be done. Why do you think that that has been so elusive? I mean, what's, I, I mean, look, obviously we're going to get into the technology and why it's unique and special, but what, what is unique and special about you that you're the one that decided to do this? How is this not something that has been addressed before? 
No, I, I'm sure like a lot of people have uh, think to, uh, thought about this and, you know, even speaking with various clinicians, there's a lot of research that is looking into coronary artery disease. One of the things or the challenges is that you need clinical context. You need to understand the patient better. You need to understand their symptoms. You do need to see a few parameters like e EKGs, which are electrical activities of the heart. They look at uh, protein. So these are mm -hmm. Uh, things that are inside your heart cells and, you know, when they die, they're released and people draw blood and uh, they uh, measure these proteins. And uh, further than that, once they see these parameters, they are able to do further tests. So they can do some imaging tests. Uh, they can go and intervene uh, with some um, imaging and find out what are the potential problems. Now, there's a bit of a challenge uh, because most of the solutions that have come out in the past have been point solutions. So there have been solutions around, we have a device that can do really good imaging, or there's a device that can do a very good electrocardiogram, the electrical information. But that is not enough. What clinicians need is always to see clinical context. They want to see symptoms. They want to see, you know, different parameters like electrical protein levels. And what we bring is we bring a combination of this to the clinician, exactly what he would see if he was to walk in, say, on a cardiology consult into the ER. Mm -hmm. And and that is most important. So um, now the, there are some barriers and where definitely where we come across very uniquely is uh, we solved a huge problem, which was drawing blood to actually see the state of the blood with the proteins coming out from the heart. And we, we did that non-invasively and made it into an ambulatory device. So what that does now is now we can bring this device outside the hospital. We can provide clinicians the data from outside the hospital. And also while in, in, in the meantime, also provide effective workflows within the hospital. So what is the, can you describe the actual product as a patient would interact with it? Is it something that they go buy in a store? Is it something their doctor gives to them that they wear to be monitored? What What is the process of monitoring the patient actually look like? Yeah, so coronary artery disease will be monitored in various places. So one is definitely a point of care when they enter with, you know, symptoms like chest pain. Mm -hmm. So the emergency room and potentially going into inpatient wards. So there is one area there. So that's a very B2B type of uh, uh, play, which is where our first focus is, where we want to provide our devices to clinicians that they can, um, uh, you know, prescribe or administer on these patients. So what these devices are like, uh, the optical, it's it's an optical-based device that measures proteins. Okay. Uh, it's a wrist device. It non-invasively detects these proteins and it can risk stratify it can stratify like how bad it is how ri how risky it is how elevated it is and then uh, we also have another device which is a form of a variable vest uh, and that picks up electrocardiograms and uh, it's highly effective because it is able to measure 12 channels of electrocardiograms continuously and the combination of these two are providing a very highly accurate specific uh, diagnostic uh, evaluation or assessment for a cardiologist. And, and so nothing like these two devices exists right now in the marketplace? So, uh, no, not on the protein side. I, uh, from our early patent searches and uh, from, from ongoing research, we're not seeing anything in the non-invasive protein detection. So that's definitely uh, unique and we've definitely patented that. On the 12-channel ECG, there are various devices like Holter monitors. Uh, some of these are <clears throat> 
excuse me, some of these are um, tethered. They have wires. Some of these come in different form factors. Some of these do come in bearables. Mm -hmm. And our uh, innovation is that, you know, we have the electrodes on the back of the body. So this is very unique because this provides long-term um, stability, robustness, um, you know, across population. We solved uh, some of the initial problems that we had as well uh, from contact, you know, women having breasts uh, and and uh, diabetic, obese people. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of contact problems that we ran into, which uh, I'm sure a lot of other variable companies are also running into long-term monitoring. So that's something we did. And so, so what we have is very unique and the combination of this to provide very unique data sets for clinicians. Uh, where, where are you in the commercialization of the product? Are you in clinical trials? Can doctors actually purchase this product from the hospital system? So we are uh, pre-commercial. Okay. We're in clinical trials right now. Uh, and uh, we're uh, testing out our optical-based uh, device, which can correlate to cardiac troponin measurements in the hospital. Also, the ECG variable, we have already tested those in outpatient clinical settings, but that's past uh, the initial clinical feasibility where we are now doing uh, what we're doing is combining that with the optical to collect data for our AI prediction models. Huh. And and so the, I guess it sounds like your thought is eventually you will have enough data gleaned from all these different uses that you can feed it into an AI that will then just help the technology be even more powerful. Absolutely. AI is the long-term goal. That That is where uh, we see the value to the population, to the clinicians, healthcare systems, payers. Um, the AI does combine ECG and protein levels. And yes, uh, down the stretch, once we have enough of this data and we have learned the patterns in these early changes, so those unstable chest pain cases that actually progress to heart attacks or unstable cases that are actually not unstable due to cardiac diseases. Mm -hmm. And so we're learning a lot of that. And over, um, you know, in, in the future, we will be at a point where we can very precisely predict that these are progressing potentially to a heart attack. How long does the clinical process take? So uh, we're talking about two things here. One is the optical-based right. device. Two different products. I'd... Right. And so the device uh, clinical trials, as, as I uh, see it, is uh, there's three phases. One is early feasibility studies, which we've uh, done. Uh, second is more of the correlation studies, which correlates what we do and what we report to what's existing in standard of care. Uh, and, and then the third one is now that we have some correlation and we know what it does, what does this mean? So those outcome clinical trials. So the early feasibility, uh, studies are, uh, you know, which took us about a year and a half was uh, very closely paired with product development. So we learn a lot. During that time, we're tweaking parameters and, and uh, the product itself, learning a lot and really understanding how effective we are. Secondly, the uh, the um, the registry trial or the correlation trials that we do, those can uh, take um, probably one to two years. Uh, in our case, we're targeting about a year to do these across multi-sites and collect data from a few hundred patients. And then uh, once we establish that, that gives actually us uh, that gives us a good sense of what does that mean, and that gives us a really good opportunity to now pivot and go towards uh, further correlation studies if needed, or or get more specific, or start moving into those outcome trials. Like what are those outcomes that we expect to see, and what are we seeing? Okay, and that could take 
that could take some time. Um, you know, again, it's uh, more than the time. It's how it's designed, how it's recruited, how do we follow it to show the value of it. So, it, uh, and uh, you know, look, I'm, anyone listening to this who sees value and interest in this, obviously you're pre-commercialization, but do you have a timeline for each of these products that you think it would be ready for the market? Yeah, so we do uh, look forward to um, having a lot of data and, and clinical um, studies done in the next year. And uh, by 2021, we'll have a good assessment of how this data looks and what does it uh, correlate to clinically. Uh, next, we est- uh, look forward to submitting this to the FDA. So we've started you know, some initial discussions with mm-hmm. the agency to understand as a pre-submission, you know, what is, what, what, do, what does the agency need to clear this device? So that's something we want to pair up with something in 2021. And ideally, uh, we can, uh, you know, line things up to launch in 2022, early 2022. You know, this is such a, and, and of course, as it should be for any sort of, you know, medical device that's going to be used by patients, right? There, there should be strict guidelines governing the process. Mm-hmm. That being said, it's a, um, your story is a little bit different than what we typically get in here with an entrepreneur who has a little bit more of a, let's call it ask forgiveness rather than permission attitude, right? As you know, we're going to, we're going to go, you know, develop this product and, uh, you know, push it out to the market and we'll kind of get the feedback. And it's, it, it's, it's not as a heavily bureaucratically governed process as yours is. And so I'm curious. For someone who has to go jump through all of these hoops to get something approved because your basically your company depends on this approval process, do you have advisors who kind of have done this before and help you understand here's some of the pitfalls of clinical trials and FDA approval? Here's what you need to avoid. Like as a first timer, how do you how do you navigate these waters successfully? No, absolutely. Absolutely. We have advisors and the right type of advisors. So we do have uh, clinicians, uh, clinical advisors who have both been very uh, effective on the research side for, you know, past few decades. And they've seen not only research go through, but also seen the research commercialize. So we do pair with them. We try to understand them. We try to understand what does it need to make this effective for market. So mm-hmm. not only like uh, clinically, what does it what, what does it mean, and how do we make it relevant and sell, but also like how do we make it safe, more effective? How do we commercialize? What does the agency look for? So those are things that we definitely work with advisors, and that's that's definitely uh, a huge arsenal we need. Sure. Yeah, I'd imagine it just for. For someone, I'm, I'm of course putting myself in this situation right now, thinking how it would be somewhat paralyzing to start the process and just sort of stare down the barrel of all these different approvals that you have to do. But of course, that's that's part of your mission, right? You have to do it to reach your goals. Correct. And I, I think as a company, what we always surround ourselves is with our vision and mission. And we understand, uh, this is a roadmap of efforts and, uh, you know, the, the value proposition that we bring and the impact we bring to hundreds and thousands of people, millions of people around the world, uh, and, and the opportunity to partner with uh, you know, top key opinion leaders in, in, in healthcare to bring about this change. 
I think that is very uh, motivating and highly uh, energizing towards, you know, making those efforts happen. So, uh, and, and as you rightfully earlier said, some of these approval processes, these stringent processes are needed. And I agree. And I think we're very glad we have those. And that not only gives us uh, assurance uh, from, from, from the agency side, but also ourselves that we're putting a product out there that is actually effective and uh, we're not causing, um, you know, false positives and negatives. And we, we definitely want to make sure we're doing a good job in providing value to patients. Uh, so you mentioned a couple of numbers, and I want to have you quantify the scale of this problem, both nationally and internationally, that you're trying to solve. Yeah. So, uh, for example, in the U.S., uh, and I'll start with that, uh, in the U.S. itself, there's uh, 800,000 heart attacks each year. And for example, 200,000 of these each year are repeat heart attacks, which means these are people who have had a heart attack in the past and they come back. So you probably had a heart attack, you got either a drug therapy to open, you know, certain plaques, blocks, or you probably had an intervention like a stent and you come back and have another heart attack. That's 25%. That's incredible. Right. And, and I think, um, uh, it comes back to the point that, uh, monitoring, right? So, so you're, you're, Come in with a problem, um, clinicians look at it and they intervene and say they put in a stent, uh, and, and you fix it and you come back, uh, you know, one out, one out of those four, for example. And you, the problem is not in the same place. It's in another place. So the, the idea is the disease, underlying disease that's causing plaques and the, the, the growth of these plaques to block those arteries that persists. There's no way to monitor them and it's not very stable. So uh, some patients might uh, present differently. Some patients who are older might actually calcify and might have more plaques, but they might be more stable as compared to some of the more fresher, younger, uh, you know, uh, stable plaques or unstable plaques. So uh, very interestingly, what we're looking at is, uh, you know, these people, you know, high risk coronary artery disease patients and uh, their chances of, you know, how they come in with chest pain. Now, globally, this is obviously, again, a huge problem. If we had to ex- extrapolate those numbers, 34.5 million heart attack patients, uh, 5% of these are uh, repeat heart attacks, a huge problem. Uh, and, and we know baby boomers, uh, you know, this aging population is going to double in the next 20, 25 years. And as is today, ERs are overcrowded. Uh, there are repeat heart attacks. Uh, Medicare does penalize uh, hospitals for readmissions on acute heart heart issues. So there's a huge problem and, and definitely that, you know, we have that lens to see what an impact we can make. Although that, that's, that's, an, that's very interesting. So across the world, you have one twentieth of those heart attacks are repeats. And across the United States, you have a quarter that yeah. are repeats. Yeah, that doesn't say anything very good about how we're living in the in this country. Right, right. Um, well, well, look, this is a, this is a fantastic mission. Um, we wish you the best of luck. If any healthcare professionals are listening to this and want to learn more, how are they going to get in touch with you? Definitely. So, like Chris said, uh, we're uh, very busy on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Atandra Berman, and uh, also directly via email. So it's Atandra at rce dot ai. Fantastic. All right, Atandra, thanks for coming on and telling your story. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Everyone, thanks for listening to Tech Talk. Have a great day. 